Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 40. Today we will be reading Book 10, Chapters 22 through 30 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast, Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Okay, so before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. We're going to cruise through some shorter chapters. You may have heard, oh no, chapters 22 through 30. Is this going to last like a billion minutes? Wait, I just clicked on the podcast episode. It didn't say a billion minutes. It was less than a billion minutes or fewer than a billion minutes. But uh, yeah, maybe that caused some anxiety in your heart of hearts. Fear not, many of these chapters are short. And in these chapters, St. Augustine is going to bop through different senses or notions of happiness. So like happiness, true happiness, and joy in the Lord, and specifically joy in the Lord, because he's going to say, apart from that, there really isn't true happiness. We're just fooling ourselves. Uh, And (laughs) along the way, he's just going to despair of a certain earthly happiness of, you know, perfect contentment or perfect delight in the material goods of this world. And then he's going to transition then uh, into what we have called in our introducing of book 10, a kind of general examination or a general confession. Uh, So the attachments that abide, maybe some of the sins and vices that he's healed from, but some of the sins and vices which still cling close. Uh, So he'll he'll make that revision in this episode and then the next. Uh, So we're going to accompany him through it. Let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 22 Far be it, Lord, far be it from the heart of your servant who here confesses unto you, far be it that whatever that joy might be, I should therefore think myself to be happy. For there is a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love you for your own sake, you yourself being their very joy. And this is the happy life, to rejoice toward you, in you, and because of you. This is it, and there is no other. For those who think that there is another happy life, pursue some other joy and not a true one. Nonetheless, their will is not turned away from some semblance of joy. Chapter 23. Therefore, it is not certain that all wish to be happy insofar as those who do not wish to rejoice in you, which is the only happy life, do not truly desire the happy life. Or do all men desire this but because, quote, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, end quote, they cannot do what they wish and therefore fall upon what they can and content themselves with that, For if they cannot accomplish something, they do not exercise their will with enough strength for them to be able to do it. For I ask anyone whether he would rather rejoice in truth or in falsehood. 
He will just as readily say, in the truth, as he says, I desire to be happy. For a happy life is joy in the truth, for this is joy taken in you who are the truth, O God, my light, health of my countenance, and my God. This is the happy life that all desire. This life which alone is happy, all desire. Yes, all desire to rejoice in the truth. I've met many who would deceive, but nobody who wishes to be deceived. Where then did they know this happy life, if not where they also knew the truth? For they love it too, since they wish not to be deceived. And when they love a happy life, which is none other than rejoicing in the truth, then also they love the truth, which they would not love if there were not some notice of it in their memory. Why then do they not rejoice in it? Why are they not happy? Because they are more powerfully occupied with other things which have more power to make them miserable than with that which they so faintly remember to make them happy. For there is still a little light in men. Let them walk. Let them walk so that the darkness may not overtake them. But why does the truth beget hatred, and why does the man coming from you, preaching the truth, become an enemy to them? Yet the happy life is loved, and it is found in nothing other than rejoicing in the truth. It would seem that such men love this truth by loving something else, and gladly wishing that what they thus love would be the truth. And since they do not wish to be deceived, they do not want to be convinced that they are in fact deceived. Therefore, they hate the truth, for the sake of that very thing that they love instead of the truth. They love truth when it enlightens, but they hate it when it proves them wrong. For since they do not wish to be deceived, but they choose to deceive, they love truth when it reveals itself to them and hate it when it reveals them. Thus, it shall repay those men who will not to be made known by it, doing so by making them known against their will and by itself becoming hidden from them. Yes, indeed, in this way does the mind of man, thus blind and sick, foul and unsightly, wish to be hidden, though it does not wish for anything to be hidden from it. But it is repaid by the opposite. It is not hidden from the truth, but the truth is hidden from it. Yet, even in this miserable state, it would rather take joy in truths than in falsehoods. How happy, therefore, will it be when, no longer obstructed, it shall take joy in that sole truth by whom all things are true. Chapter 24 See how great a space I have traveled through in my memory while seeking you, Lord. And yet I have not found you beyond it, nor have I discovered anything concerning you except what I have kept in my memory since I first learned of you. For since I learned of you, I have not forgotten you. And where I found the truth, there I found my God, the truth itself, which I have not forgotten after I learned it. Therefore, since I learned of you, you reside in my memory, and there, when I call you to remembrance, I find you and take delight in you. These are my holy delights, which you, looking upon my poverty, have given me in your mercy. Chapter 25 But where do you reside in my memory, O Lord? Where do you reside there? What sort of dwelling have you fashioned for yourself there? What kind of sanctuary have you built for yourself? You have honored my memory by residing in it. But in what part of it do you reside? This is what I now find myself considering. For while thinking upon you, I passed beyond all those parts of my memory that I share with animals, who also have memory. For I did not find you there among images of bodily things. Then I came to those parts where I store my mind's affections, and there too I did not find you. Next, I entered the very seat of my mind, which it has in memory, insofar as the mind also remembers itself, and there too you were not to be found. For just as you are not a bodily image, nor some affection felt by a living being, as when we rejoice, feel sorrow, desire, fear, remember, forget, or the like, so too neither are you the mind itself. For you are the Lord God of the mind. And indeed all these things change, but you yourself remain unchangeable over all things. Yet you have thought it fitting to dwell in my memory since I learned of you. And why do I now seek the place therein where you dwell, as though it were made up of places? I am sure that you dwell there, for I have remembered you from the time I learned of you, and there I find you when I call you to remembrance. 
Chapter 26. Where then did I find you so that I might learn of you? For you were not in my memory before I learned of you. Where then did I find you that I might learn of you, if not in you, above me? There is no place. We go back and forth, and there is no place. Everywhere, O truth, you hear all who beseech you for counsel, and at once you answer all, even though they seek your counsel on many matters. You answer with clarity, though all do not hear these pure words. All seek counsel from you concerning what they wish, though they do not always hear what they wish. Your best servant is he who looks not so much to hear from you what he wills, but rather to will what he hears from you. Chapter 27 Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient yet ever new. Late have I loved you. Behold, you were within, and I was out abroad, searching there for you. Deformed, I plunged into the fair forms that you had made. You were with me, but I was not with you. I was held back far from you by things which would not themselves be if they were not in you. You called, you shouted, and you burst open my deafness. You flashed, you shone in radiance, and you drove away my blindness. You breathed forth your fragrance, and I drew my breath and sighed for you. I tasted, and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Chapter 28 When I come to cling to you with my whole self, I shall feel no sorrow or labor, and I shall then be fully alive, wholly filled with you. But now, since you lift up him whom you fill, I am a burden to myself because I am not filled with you. Weeping joys strive with joyous sorrows, and I know not which side is the victor. Woe is me! Lord, have pity on me! Woe is me! Behold, I do not hide my wounds. You are the physician, and I am the sick man. You are merciful, and I am miserable. Is not man's life on earth nothing but a trial? Who wishes for troubles and difficulties? You command that they be endured, not loved. No man loves, but he endures, even if he loves to endure. For although he rejoices at the fact that he endures, he would prefer that there be nothing for him to endure. In adversity I long for prosperity, and in prosperity I fear adversity. What middle place exists between these two where the life of man is not wholly a trial? Woe to prosperities experienced in this world once and again through the fear of adversity and the corruption of joy. Woe to the adversities experienced in this world once and again and a third time over through the longing for prosperity, and because adversity itself is a hard thing to endure, and because it might shatter one's endurance. Is not the life of man upon earth nothing but an unremitting trial? Chapter 29 All my hope is nowhere other than your exceedingly great mercy. Give what you command and command what you will. You command us to take up continence, and when I knew, as had been said, that no man can be continent unless God gives it, this also was accounted wisdom, namely, to know whose gift it is. Truly, by continence we are bound up and brought back to the one from whom we were spread out into many things. For too little does someone love you if he loves anything along with you and does not love it for your very sake. O ever-burning and never-consuming love, O charity, my God, kindle me. You command continence. Give me what you command and command what you will. Chapter 30 Truly, you command of me continence from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the ambition of the world. You command continence from concubinage, and even for wedlock you have counseled something better than what you have permitted. And since you gave it, it was done, even before I became one who dispenses your sacrament. But in my memory, about which I have spoken at length, there live the images of all those things that my evil habits fixed upon, all haunting me. They are strengthless when I am awake, but in sleep they come not only in order to give pleasure, but also to attain assent and even something that is very close to reality. Yes, the illusion of the image prevails so far in my soul and flesh that while I am asleep, false visions persuade me to do that which true experience cannot convince me to do. 
Am I not myself when this happens, O Lord my God? And yet there is so much difference between myself and myself from that moment when I pass from waking to sleep or from sleep to waking. Where is reason then which resists such suggestions when it is awake? And should the things themselves press upon it, it remains unshaken. Does it close when the eyes close? Is it lulled to sleep along with our bodily senses? And how is it that even in sleep we often resist, mindful of our intentions, and abiding most chastely in them, yield no assent to such enticements? Yet there is so much difference between them that when the opposite takes place, when we awake, we return to peace of conscience. And this very difference reveals that we did not do this deed for which we feel sorrow as though it had been done within us in some way. Are you not mighty, God Almighty, able to heal all of my soul's diseases and by your more abundant grace to extinguish even my soul's impure movements in sleep? You will increase your gifts, Lord, more and more within me, so that my soul may follow me to you, disentangled from the underbrush of concupiscence, so that it may no longer rebel against itself, and even in dreams not only resist committing, at the suggestion of those sense images, those debasing corruptions, even to the point of emitting fleshly pollution, but even refuse to consent to them at all. It is not difficult for you, Almighty One, who are able to do things beyond what we can ask or think, to make it be that none of this should have even the least influence over our pure affections, even while sleeping, not only during this life, but even at my present age. But what I am yet as regards this kind of evil, I have confessed to my good Lord, rejoicing with trembling, in what you have given me, and mourning over my remaining imperfection, hoping that you will perfect your mercies in me even to the point of perfect peace, which my outward and inward man shall have with you when death is swallowed up in victory. So in this passage from which we just read, or in these chapters from which we just read of Book 10, uh, St. Augustine is going to elaborate on, or we just heard him elaborate on the happy life. And he has a nice little compact way of describing it. The happy life is to rejoice towards, in, and because of the Lord. So there's just the one happy life in the Lord, or toward, in, and because of the Lord, and there is no other. So this becomes for him the standard or paradigm whereby we judge our joys, whether they're true joys or false joys. Or we might simply say whether they are fleeting, earthly, you know, kind of momentary joys, or whether they are thick, substantial, heavenly joys. And that's, you know, there's going to be a place for, for some of the smaller J joys, but ultimately we're trying to arrange those joys or cultivate those joys with an eye towards the uppercase J joy, who is Christ the Lord, in whom, toward whom, because of whom, we hope for anything good in this world and in the next. So as we set this standard before our eyes, Father Jacob Bertrand, uh, how then do we go about yeah, reading this particular passage, interpreting St. Augustine's words, and maybe living our own pursuit of the joy which he describes? Yeah, there's um, yesterday's episode and today's we're, we're talking about happiness and this pursuit of joy, but you know that there's there's this common desire written into who we are, into our nature, to be happy, to have joy. And and if we look at human action, we look at St. Augustine's life throughout the years, um, we see this pursuit alive and well, even when he's when he's sinning. It's not that that he's doing good in sinning, but that he's he's trying to be happy in sort of the wrong ways, we could say. So I think it, 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 as St. Augustine talks about the happy life, what it consists in, what it's aimed at, what it's from. Um, there's also a, a sort of an appeal to our, to I was going to say our common humanity, but like what it means to be a man and a woman. Um, even, and this I think is an important point, that even when people aren't, you know, pursuing Christ, aren't living a life of virtue, that we still share, like our humanity still shares that desire for what is good and true, even even if it's mistaken. So it's 
it's less, I think, the the argument, and not that he's making an argument, but here it's less of a sort of argument of do people want to be happy, you know, as a thing, but more how is it that people are seeking happiness? So I think Augustine's wrestled with this, you know, throughout his confessions, throughout his life. Yeah, and it's fascinating too, he will go through different ways in which we lie to ourselves or deceive ourselves, but at the end of the day, he says, you can't really obscure this fact wholly and entirely. One of the observations that we heard him just make is everyone desires the truth, even if he doesn't tell the truth, uh, because while we might desire to deceive someone, especially if it's profitable for us, we don't ever desire to be deceived, right? People just don't desire to be deceived. They want to know the truth. You know, it might be initially pleasant to be told, yeah, you look great in that dress, but you want to actually know whether or not you look good in that dress because you asked the question for a reason, not just for an underlying affirmation. So he'll, he'll talk about rejoicing in truth. As he talks about joy, he, you know, he's going to get into the kind of human experience of cultivating that joy, and he says it's got to be in the truth. And this for him is, is a kind of paradigmatic expression of what it means to be happy in this life and towards the next. And it's like the type of thing that other spiritual authors get at when they say, like, we need to consent, you know, or we need to abandon ourselves, or we need to basically give ourselves to the Lord in these present circumstances. For St. Augustine, it's a matter of rejoicing in truth, saying, I don't understand it entirely. You know, I don't really even agree with <laughs> the type of decision making that permitted all this to happen. And yet I can say simply and wonderfully, God is good. I trust him. I will take this as it's served up and I'll make a meal out of it. So yeah, he'll, he'll go on to describe how you, you might be occupied with other things, potentially distracted from true happiness, but at the end of the day, if you're going to want to partake of it, you have to rejoice in the truth. So yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand, how does you know this truth factor into each of our individual journeys or maybe just some, some observations there from St. Augustine's descriptions? Yeah, perhaps it's, it's not what St. Augustine writes about directly, but it's obviously related to what he writes about, I think. And as you were explaining, Father Gregory, rejoicing in the truth, we live in a world that is that is so comfortable with, with creating a truth that suits a sort of narrative that we want to be true. But we see that, you know, if we take a step back, we see that that isn't conducive really in the end to happiness. It might be in a limited sort of way. Like I've, I've heard it said that people who who aren't living in the truth can be happy, but it's it's a sort of limited happiness, or it's only as happy as they know how to be. And as men and women created to know and love God, we're, we're created to be as happy as God desires us to be. You know, that it goes beyond. We're invited to participate in this happiness, not to create it for ourselves. We're invited to participate in truth, not to create it for ourselves. So there's, there's a sort of reckoning in conversion um, with this reality that like, I'm not the arbiter and the definer of what is going to satisfy me, but I am called to live in what is going to satisfy me. It, you kind of have to, you know, resign yourself a bit, not in a, not in a way to be a doormat of somebody else's designs, but in a way to be freed from like the limited understanding of, and, and living that we have. And I think we see this alive and well in St. Augustine in his life. You know, he's, he's kind of tries to hold on to all these different things that he thinks are going to make him happy, but in the end, they just fail him over and over again. You know, the life of lust and promiscuity, the life of the Manichaeans, um, you know, whatever it might be, the list can go on. You know, the life of an order and, and a teacher, they just like don't satisfy, you know, because he's trying to set the parameters. So it's kind of a, a relinquishing here for, for St. Augustine, which is, it's beautiful kind of just to see it let go and also beautiful and to try to do in our own lives there, reflect on how that's happened in our own lives. Yeah, and he has some some cool further thoughts apropos of what that looks like. Um, and I think a good 
kind of phrase to have in mind is that we need to love the truth more than we love ourselves. Because oftentimes it's through a certain selfishness or pride or vanity that we fall prey to these temptations. So he'll describe how, you know, some people, they love the truth when it enlightens them, but they hate it when it proves them wrong. Uh, because ultimately, like, what's the standard for them? It's themselves. You know, and you see some people approach the faith this way. They like the faith when it agrees with them, but they don't like the faith when it doesn't. And then they want to change it because effectively they just want the world to reflect their own, you know, interior states, which is a kind of crazed egotism. But like, at a certain level, we all suffered from such crazed egotism. And what it takes for us to be broken of that is conversion. And so St. Augustine will describe how, you know, he's going to arrive at God. He's going to pass beyond memory. He's going to repose in the truth itself. But like, how ultimately does this come about? And it's just by God's interposition. It's by God's choice. It's by God's condescension. It's by God's entry into our life. And so it's at this point where he kind of arrives at the summit of his meditations and he pronounces this most beautiful prayer. You know, late have I loved you, a beauty so ancient yet ever new. And it's just shot through with this repentance, this lamentation of the fact that he has preferred himself for so long to the truth. And as a result of which, he has effectively rejected the truth. But still, God comes, you know, like you called and you shouted and you burst open my deafness because we need to be healed of our deafness if we're going to learn to speak because faith comes through what is heard and then is subsequently interiorized in belief and vocalized in profession. And so, yeah, I just I just love this prayer and I love the Matt Marr version of it as well. It's a great thing to shout at the top of your lungs. But it's just a, it's a sweet, sweet testimony to God's pursuit of us and to this, I don't know if we want to call it violent, but the persistence of that love. So I don't know if yeah, you've, you've had experiences which kind of capture this, or you've had other meditations which follow upon it. But yeah, your thoughts? Well, I'm not going to be vulnerable and open up my own life to, <laughs> at this point in time. But no, seriously, there's, I, you said I, something about violence. I don't know if we want to use the word violence. I think we do want to, I, I like the word, well, this is going to sound terrible. Please don't like make this a sound bite. But I like the idea of there's a sort of violence here because there's a violence and casting out evil and casting out sin. You know, God wages war in our lives and he dies for that to cast us out. And this prayer to it, I mean, it's a classic, right? It's not just like, oh, I just found this. Like, this is a prayer that that is used in a lot of places. Matt Marr has a song there. I'm sure there are others. But there's sometimes we think of God as one who waits and quiet and speaks in quiet. And it's true. But God also, you know, he flashes, he shines his radiance, he drives away my blindness, he shouts, he calls. We could say in a way there's a desperation on God's end for us that he just desires, he wants, and he stops at nothing to get us. I mean, he's never going to force us, but he stops at nothing to offer himself. And that's that's like the game or the name of love. And at moments in my life, I've certainly experienced that at moments of like repentance or contrition or attrition, probably not perfect contrition or moments of encounter with the Lord that have just been so kind of like here he is, he's there, he's been there, but here he is, he's sort of pulling back the veil for me to to step in. And I wonder as we read these pages, it kind of in thinking about Augustine's reaction here, because he's not writing the confessions when this happens, though I'm sure it happened on multiple times or more than once, but he's writing at some point, you know, almost 10 years or well, a little less than that, but you know, he's reflecting on what has happened. So I imagine there's a real comfort and and thanksgiving in his reflection on the work and the movements of God in his own life. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I don't want to like cheapen the word by using it too much, but it's, it's just beautiful to kind of behold. So, yeah. 
Boom. All right, well, one final theme. Uh, so you may have noticed in your reading of this text or listening to this text that St. Augustine will uh, refer to what he calls like nocturnal pollution. So it's something that's kind of like awkward to read or awkward to hear. But he's referring to, uh, yeah, like being aroused basically in the middle of the night. And he's like, I don't yet have control over this. You know, I've kind of got control over the daytime because my reason is more involved, but I don't have control over the nighttime. And I think basically the, the Christian reflection or meditation on this through the centuries is that we're responsible for what we're taking or we're responsible for like, if we eat and drink way too much, then maybe we're more likely to suffer some of these thoughts and movements during the course of the night or we're responsible for the type of media we consume thinking in terms of the 21st century, like movies and music and stuff like that. But we're not responsible insofar as we're not awake and we're not reasoning during the night apart from that. So if you were Reading that and perhaps troubled by that, you can take it in stride. And then the last point would just be to simply say, St. Augustine comes to the recognition at this point that he's, he just can't be continent unless God gives him the grace to do it. And so he says this prayer, which he repeats a couple of times in this selection, which we talked about in the bonus introductory episode, God, give what you command and command what you will. So God, give what it is that you ask of us human beings, you know, your, your sons and daughters, uh, but ultimately let that command reflect your will for us, your love for us, the perfection of your divine plan so that we can be reconciled to it, so that we can be drawn unto it. So Father Jacob Burchin, you want to just give us a word on this last uh, invocation of St. Augustine from this passage? Yeah, I think we talked about it in our bonus episode a little bit, but I love reading it sort of backwards. You know, it's give what you command and command what you will. Well, it's clear that God has a will, a desire for us. He has a sort of, um, yeah, plan for us, and he commands in ways that we follow it, that we cooperate with it. But it's a great reminder that he gives us the means to do that. You know, we have to pray for it. We have to ask for it. We have to put ourselves there, be present, all the rest. But God doesn't command or will us to do anything that he doesn't prepare us and, and give us the strength for. So, yeah, I like, I mean, you read it forward, you read it backwards. I mean, it's not a, a palindrome kind of thing, but you know what I mean. So um, it's comforting to know again, yet again, um, that God is at work, that, it, that it's his it's his plan, it's his will, it's his love for us that that directs and guides. So we just have to ask, be there. God does not permit anything to befall from which he does not also provide a way out, but more than a negative formulation, what we have here is a positive formulation that whenever we look at our lives, we can know that God is present therein and that by consenting to it and abandoning ourselves to that plan, that we'll find the good things which lie in store, which come to us as a deliverance of God's loving kindness. So. That's, uh, that's our hope for you, listener, as we progress through these confessions. Uh, you can know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics.